A trans-international airlines flight is flying from JFK to Dulles in Washington, D.C., but they barely get off the ground. What ultimately caused damage and for this flight to stall into the ground? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And oh boy, has a lot happened I mean, since we is, last recorded. Yeah, this is the first time in uh, <laughs> three weeks. weeks. Yeah, three weeks. So, fun fact, um, last time, two times ago that we recorded, we were recording very ahead of schedule and forgot something. So instead, we're celebrating it today because today is actually our four-year anniversary. Yes, the day that we are recording this is the four-year anniversary of the podcast. Crazy! I can't even imagine. But also... Thinking of podcasts we like, by the time they got to four years, that was their full-time job. Crazy, right? <laughs> Crazy, right? <laughs> that just made me sad. It shouldn't make you sad. We have our own kind of success. I, I feel like it's our, our podcast is also kind of niche A little bit niche And Not that I think it I'll, could be niche I think people would enjoy it more. They just don't realize that. Yeah, but like everyone likes true crime podcasts. Like, well, yeah, of if course. You're, if that's what you're looking for, there's like a billion of them. You search them up, there's a bunch. And the reality is, if you like those, you'd like us. You just don't know that because you don't listen. Right. <laughs> I, like I said. You don't try it. We're just a little niche. Yeah. All right. There's several people we have to thank. Yes. I have them pulled up real quick. Hopefully, I get everybody. Sorry in advance. Jason. Melissa. Uh, Here, do you want me to pull it up on the website? It might be. F- Natalie. Might be a good idea, though. And I think I think that's it since the last time. You might want to double check, but. I'm, I'm going to double check. But it's been a minute, and we had some new peoples. Yeah. Thanks. So much, actually. Like, yeah. I'm very happy. Yeah. How many? How many? How many patrons do we have now? Ask her. We have a free tier. No. Patreon has a free tier now. <laughs> we have six free tier patrons. I don't know what they get with that. What? It just means they like us or something. I, that just means they get to listen to the show. I, I or they just support us. I don't know. I don't know. But cool. You can double check that, but I have not changed anything. If that's the case, it doesn't tell us. That's probably part of Patreon's new thing. I didn't get anything about it, though. I, like I, I said, it doesn't, it doesn't tell us, but it must be part of Patreon's new thing. There should be a place on Patreon to look at your tiers. Yeah, so there's 80 paying patrons, 86 total. Nice. So free members... Get access to posts made for everyone, which we don't do any. No, mm-hmm. no. I always make it for tiers. They get notifications when new posts that they have access to are published. They can easily upgrade to a paid membership and they can comment on any posts that they have access to. Okay. So nothing. It just means they like us. Thanks. I will, I will make sure to double check, but I'm pretty sure I don't make anything public. So. Okay. Well, anyway anxiety <laughs> anyway so there's 80 paying patrons which is wonderful yeah and i mean 86 i mean yeah yeah thanks to the six free people yeah that's great thank you thank for you liking so us <laughs> we appreciate it i guess that's a maybe thing it's you like can a do. bookmark for later pretty much like yeah you know well and all six of you joined the same day huh it's probably the day they up they did it probably it notified people yeah. like i probably got a notification and i probably didn't notice so thank you everyone thanks okay so few updates 
Stick around for the post episode. We're going to talk about a trip. Um, the wild and crazy standby adventures. Oh my gosh. Don't even, don't. <laughs> don't. It's so much. Check out all the normal stuff. The Patreon, which now apparently has a free tier that you get nothing for. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> if you have signed up for Patreon recently, you will also get stuff from that. Soon. Yes, you will You will get merch. Some of these people look familiar. I wonder if it's people who like canceled and now they get automatically that signed up for a free tier. Oh, maybe. Possible. Yeah. Very possible. Maybe. I don't know. It's like 10 more people than we had the last time I looked. Yeah. it's It's gone up for sure. But, but thanks. Anyway. And then also like check out the newsletter, which are now on the website, by the way. Yes, they are. If you're not signed up to get them at the beginning of the month, they're on the website. At least they're there. And you can answer the trivia questions anytime. Yes. You just have to email us. Yes. All right. I think that's all the, like, unless you have guys that have anything else. There's light in here now. We got <gasps> we two lamps. lamps. <laughs> Thanks for can, funding our lamps. We, the, the $10 lamps that we got. From the Walmart. Two, the two, two cheap $10 lamps we got. Which the, is great because the overhead light doesn't work and the other lamp we have doesn't it work. It quit working. So. <laughs> so now at least we have two floor lamps that do work for now. <laughs> it's crazy. And actually produce light. So it's actually bright in here now. Yeah. Also, there's been a few people who've emailed us recently. Yes. Thank you. We do like seeing your emails. We do read them. Thank you. I I have answered most of you if you required me to answer you. But other than that, yes. Thank you so much. But thanks. do appreciate it. Keep emailing. We do read it. Other than that. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Trans International Airlines Flight 863. Thank you to Matt for recommending this. We We are in the midst of Matt's recommendations. Ah, yes. Thanks, Matt. We probably started those already, but I don't remember yes, that. Yes, this is three out of five. Okay. You might remember we recorded three weeks ago. To you guys, that was not that long ago because it came out last week, but the reality is it was three weeks in between and a lot of stuff has happened since then. Yep. So. Also, thank you for unintentionally recommending a lot of easy stuff that made it easy for us to record in advance and have and a vacation. And post, because a couple of these are also pretty easy afterward. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. So, so, thank you. All right. Yes, that. Uh, This accident occurred on September 8th of 1970. This was a Douglas DC-863 CF. Yeah, Douglas. Shocker. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) I just put a whole bunch of recommendations on the list. Guess Uh what most of them were? Douglas. (laughs) DC-8, DC-9s, MD-83s. I will say this is not technically the airplane's fault this time. Hmm. Oh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Technically. Mm. We'll talk about it. Anyway, this one had the tail number November 4863 Tango. This was a very short flight from JFK in New York to <clears throat> to Washington Dulles in Washington, D.C., both of which I have visited. You guys, both of you, yeah, you yeah. have visited because you guys have been to JFK now. So yeah, that's yeah. why I made the puking yeah. noise. Yeah, yeah. I hate yeah, JFK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And. Dulles is fine. You guys didn't see much of Dulles, but it's... I don't remember it. I'm going to be honest with you. That was like five years ago. You realize well, that, right? Yeah, and we were we had one of the closest gates to the exit, so we were just like right out, like, yeah, like that. Things have changed since we've been there too. There's the train now and whatnot, and it's it's a nice airport actually. It's not it's not terrible. It's when I almost left my phone in the lift. You remember that? Uh huh. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That would have been. And we saw NTSB headquarters, which is an office yes. building. Yes. <laughs> yes. But it doesn't, it, most of the airport doesn't have windows. That's what always bothered me. That is weird. It is. I didn't like it. But people like that airport. And I can kind of understand why. 
I but didn't man. like super like Reagan. I didn't love that there were spiders everywhere. I mean, we were in the really old part of that airport too. Not I that see. much of it is new. <laughs> but to be fair, Reagan's not a very big airport. No. So. no. Anyways. Okay. <laughs> the captain for this flight. This this is fun. The names are fun. You'll you'll see why. They're all they're all very white. <laughs> Sorry. But yes, it's true. They're all Yeah. And they're all very Billy Bob Joe. Basic. Yeah. Basic. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny because all of them like carry the name to one part of their name to like the next person. You'll, you'll see what I mean. <laughs> the captain was Joseph John May, who was 49 years old. They're also all around the same age. We'll talk about that in a minute because it actually makes a lot of sense. He had 22,300 hours total. Wait. That, okay. Here's my, the source for my confusion. Joseph John May. Later on. Much later. Mm-hmm. The first officer says, hey, Ron. I don't know. Okay. Actually, I do. Okay. It wasn't him. It wasn't him. Oh, okay. Okay, we'll get there. Anyways, Joseph John May, he was 49 years old. He had 22,300 uh-huh. hours, which is a lot. Yes. A lot of hours, of which 7,100 were on the DC-8. Okay, cool. Experienced, needless to say. The first officer was John Donald Loeffler, who was 47 years old. So around the same age, he had 15,775 hours total, still a lot, of which 4,750 were on the DC-8, also a lot. And then the flight engineer was Donald Kenneth Neely. Figure it all out. That's hilarious. Joseph John May is John Donald Loeffler is Donald Kenneth Neely. Like that, Donald, I assume, is Ron. No, they determined he was talking to the captain. I don't know where they figured that out then because he doesn't have anything to do with Ron. They must have been saying John, but his first name is Joseph. <laughs> Some people go by their middle name. Yeah. Which is very confusing since John's also the first officer. Not that Joseph or Joe is that hard compared to John. Hold on. I need <laughs> I, I, I need to go look for I'm this. Sorry, all of this is getting really confusing. Anyways, Donald Kenneth Neely was 42 years old. Again, they're all around the same age. He had ten around 10,000 hours total, of which 3,500 were on the DC-8. This has to be one of the most experienced crew on one type as a whole. We've talked about where like all three of them have more than 3,000 hours yeah. on the airplane, which is pretty crazy. So they're, they're pretty experienced on one type. And overall, all of them have more than 10,000 hours, which is also a pretty experienced flight crew. Okay, but then, but, but. But then we're talking but, about them, right? Yeah, I, like, <laughs> I, know, I know, but then we're talking about them in an accent. I know. The first officer stated something very foreshadowing, Ron. Ron has been identified as the captain by fellow pilots. Okay. Maybe he just went by Ron. Sure. Who knows? There's probably enough Joseph, Johns, and Mays <laughs> within the company that he couldn't use any of the three. So I don't know. Or it's like a, a, a nickname from For whatever. something. Anyways, you might have noticed, like I said, all the three of them are around the same age. Mind you, this happened in 1970. You might remember what might have happened when they were young. The war! The war. The war! When they were like... Very youngins. Yes, they probably were in the war. So more than likely, all of them were pilots in the war. That's probably why they have the war. That's (laughs) probably why they have so many hours. That's why they have so many hours being in their 40s. Yeah. Because they've been flying for a long freaking time. A lot. So, yeah, that's that's to set up. They were in the war. The The war. war. Anyways. Bringing it back. Bringing it back. (laughs) All the way back. This was a ferry flight with a total of 11 crew on board. No, that does not mean the mythological creature fairy. 
No. No, they had to ferry the airplane somewhere. That also doesn't mean they put it on a boat. No, they they had to fly it <laughs> to an airport because they needed the airplane somewhere. It means yes. the only people on board are crew. Yes. 11 of them, which means there was a lot of flight attendants. There was also probably some other flight crew, but they didn't state. So They did not specify. But to be fair, what they were doing was they were moving the airplane to Washington Dulles so that they could then board some passengers who were waiting for the airplane to go on a flight to London Gatwick. Not so. to foreshadow, but this may or may not be part of our story later. Maybe. Kind of. Kind of. Meh. We'll, we'll go over it. Yes. The crew arrived at the TIA. That's the initials for the airline. Yes. Trans-International yeah, Airlines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, were very, they weren't a very big airline throughout history. They existed. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 weren't, they weren't a very big airline. Put it that way. The crew arrived at the TIA office at JFK at around 2.10 p.m. for the 4 o'clock scheduled departure. Okay. For the flight to D.C. A short flight. The flight requested their departure clearance at 3.26 p.m., which was given at 3.30 p.m. The flight was then given instructions to taxi to runway 13 right at JFK. All of this is now around 4 o'clock. 4.04 p.m., the flight was cleared to taxi into position and hold on runway 13 right. 4.04 p.m. and 55 seconds, the flight was cleared for an immediate takeoff. 4.05 p.m. and 7 seconds, the flight began their takeoff roll. The airplane then rotated for takeoff. But something was immediately wrong. Amiss. Something was completely amiss. Uh-oh. Because the tail skid struck the runway. DC-8s were built with tail skids, and quite a few airplanes actually still have these, but they're quite literally a... Bumper? Bumper, basically, on the underside of the tail that allows them to do tail strikes and not cause a bunch of damage to the airplane. That doesn't mean it doesn't always cause damage to the airplane, but that's the point anyways. So the tail skid struck the runway and began dragging shortly after this rotation, beginning at just 1,550 feet down the runway. Note anything strange about that? That's called foreshadowing. So 1,550 feet down the runway, and they're tail struck and dragging down the runway. The tail skid dragged intermittently for another 1,250 feet. 4.05 p.m. and 35 seconds as the aircraft was 2,800 feet down the runway, it became airborne. After becoming airborne, however, the flight was seen pitching up to a nose-high attitude, just kind of continuously pitching yeah. upward. Something was amiss. There's not a whole lot beyond this. Everything happens very fast, in case you haven't figured that out. The stick shaker then activated shortly after takeoff, as in within two seconds of huh, becoming really? airborne. Weird. Yeah. I, by the way, I am leaving quite a bit out, but there's not You're much. You're leaving out so much. But there's not much written in the story. That's why. Oh. It was very short. There really just, it wasn't there. This is what they wrote. Everything that I, I took, everything they took in the story, I put in here. I really hope I didn't assume you wrote things. I hope so, too. I know some of what was there. I know some of what happened, because some of that comes up in the findings. But they didn't write it in the story. Okay. So I didn't either. That makes me feel like I I think I have an idea what happened. You have no idea. But now I, that makes me feel like I don't know what's happening. I, I, I know what you're feeling, but I also guarantee this is actually a new one. You see, oh, I was like, you see what I'm putting down? Never. Yeah, nope, nope. This, this is a new one. Okay, then I'm going to say it for those of you who are like, what are you thinking? Yeah. Um, weight and balance is what I was It's thinking. a good theory. Good thought. That's definitely. I talk a... about how it's a theory. You yeah. definitely have a good theory. Yeah. But that's not what happened. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I tried. It. This has all of the symptoms, to be fair. Yeah, Everything well, about this has the symptoms. You Everything think about, that's like, 
everything that happens next is still symptomatic of that, right? Yeah. The the following scene sounds very much like a video most of us have watched. The yes. the, the 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 I always get it wrong. Is it nation air or national? national? National. God damn it. I always get that one wrong. National, national is the one that's still around. Nation air is gone. Okay, please continue with your description. Okay. Like I said, there's not a whole lot more. This continued until 4.05 and 49 seconds, so just a handful of seconds the Six Shaker was on, which just blows my mind because, anyways, all of this happened, though, very quickly. Witnesses saw the nose pitch up to between 60 and 90 degrees nose up, which is basically straight vertical, at around an altitude of just 300 to 500 feet above the ground. The aircraft then rolled to around 20 degrees to the right, but then rolled back to the left and continued rolling to the left until it was 90 degrees left wing down, and then it descended in a left wing and nose down attitude. It literally sounds like you're watching the video of National. What the hell are they doing? The aircraft impacted the ground at 4.05 p.m. and 52 seconds on the left wing and nose first. The aircraft immediately went up in flames in a large fireball. Firefighting crews arrived just 30 seconds. Uh, well, After the I accident, would hope so they're right near the airport. They were still at JFK. Yeah, all this happened at JFK, and they brought the fire under control within five minutes. However, it was quickly apparent that nobody survived the, the crash. That's horrible. Eleven people, and none of them survived. Sorry, so, that felt very ungenuine. That really is horrible. Yeah, it, it is. It's. Horrible. I'm not trying to like make little of it. Yes, it is very. No, it's it's terrible, and that's. That's literally all they wrote in the stories, so that's all I had. Solid. Well, I have a a, a bit. Not, I know. Not a big bit, but I got a bit. I know. Un po. Yes, one might say. This investigation was performed by the... NTSB! <laughs> Both black boxes were recovered and were vital in the investigation. Oh, I bet. Quote. Mind you, this is a very interesting quote. I don't know why they worded it this way, but I, I read it out loud to Nick, and we both looked at each other like, what? Quote. The circumstances surrounding this accident immediately directed the thrust of the investigation to those conditions that could ab- affect abnormally the pitch control of the aircraft, end quote. Which just feels... Wrong? Pointed. <laughs> That's the way, it was best a way really I strange statement. Yeah. To use the word thrust in it felt like they were trying to make a pun. And it didn't work. And it was also not relevant. No, it wasn't. No, this doesn't sound like an engine problem. This You're was correct. the point at which Nick realized he was doing the wrong notes. Yes, it was. Because I said that, and he's like, no, something's wrong with the engine. I'm like, no, there's nothing wrong with the no. engine. What notes are you doing? Don't foreshadow too much on the next win, the next one, though. Anyways, but yeah, that, yeah, I was doing the wrong notes, but it's okay. Both of them were very short, so I didn't, I got to the right ones. Anyway, so along those lines, what are some things that could affect pitch? The circumstances for me immediately harken back to National Airlines Flight 102. Yeah, uh, that me too. <laughs> That was my thought. Yeah. Which, by the way, we covered in episode 32, in case you were wondering. That was a hot minute ago. Holy cow, I didn't realize it was that long ago. Yeah, it was, it was really I don't remember long. that one being that early in the podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was pretty early. Like that, that means we did that one in the apartment. It was, yeah, yeah. It was in, like, the first six months. Wow. That was the one we lost. Was it? No. No. no there's no way. No. No, that was the We lost that, episode 33. Yeah. The immediately following episode. Yeah. yeah. No, okay. we, we covered that in... May of 2020. Wild. Crazy. Man, I don't remember any of that. Anyways. <laughs> Midst of the pandemic. Anyway. Yes. Wow. Okay. In that situation, the cargo shifted backward and affected the weight and balance and caused them to pitch up, tilt side to side, stall, and crash. Sound familiar? 
That's exactly what happened. It seems like it's exactly what happened here. That is not what happened. Investigators found that the weight and balance were within the established limits. Which is when they immediately went, what then? Dang. The only, Holy crap. The only other thing I can think of, well, there's there's two. Okay. China Airlines, episode seven, they, they struck the tail. The right? doubler plate? Yeah. Which I don't think this has to do with the doubler plate, by no. the way. I, they no, because struck, that one was a depressurization explosion yeah. in, in flight. No. But the other one is, oh, I just had it. Tenerife. And not because of what happened in Tenerife, but because the 47 that was going down the runway tried to lift off too early and tail struck and dragged the tail yeah. down the runway until they hit the other 47. But right. that doesn't explain. Well, if they lifted too early, if they didn't have enough thrust and they lifted too early, they would. Well, they made it off the ground. They did. Your theories are nice. Your theories are are not wrong. You already told me that we haven't covered this yet, though. Nope. None of my theories are correct. We have covered only one other incident that has some vague resemblance to this. Yes. And it is in the see also section. Right. And if Miranda remembers that, kudos, because I almost didn't. Yes. Uh, that probably means I don't remember it. But. It's a very important one. Oh, well, I It's guess a very important one. I think Rich recommended it. Anyway. That, none of that helps me. Please know. continue. So, not weight and balance. Dang. The autopsies established that there was no evidence of pre-existing disease or disability within the crew, nor was there any evidence of in-flight incapacitation or interference. Dang. Also dang. Well, what controls the pitch? What control surfaces control the pitch? The horizontal stabilizer. Yeah. It was found to be in an appropriate setting for takeoff. Flaps were also properly extended. I was going to say flaps, too. Dang. Then that, yeah. But there's a very key detail that I put in there that I also pointed out. Yep. That should have... Let me get there! Sure. Should have hearkened to some something interesting. So... Calculations by investigators and Douglas found that 16 degrees of elevator up deflection and 80 knots of speed would have been sufficient for rotation. Barely. Okay. Barely. That was like bare minimum. So FYI, the rotation happened around. Okay. Continue. Between the two black boxes and witness statements, investigators determined that the aircraft rotated excessively nose high at a speed of only 91 knots when they were just 1,500 feet past the beginning of the takeoff roll, causing a tail strike during the rotation, which then skid along the ground for 1,250 feet. How could that have caused this accident? And here's where we bring up some evidence found in the wreckage. Investigators discovered that a hole had been punched into the right horizontal spar web access door, with traces of asphalt around the hole, and there was scarring on the leading edge of the right elevator. All of that probably sounds like Chinese to some people who don't speak Chinese. Further examination of the wreckage revealed several large asphalt-covered stones in the area of the recovered tail section. That's not normal. No. No. So investigators took the stones to see if any of them lined up with the hole. When the elevator moved to the nose-up position, the stone was placed in the area. When force was applied to return the elevator to level position, the stone jammed in place and kept the elevator from moving. Oh. You see the problem? Yeah. That explains a lot. Yes. Yes. It also explains why they wouldn't be able to fix it either. Uh Uh-huh. As more force was added, like saying you're trying to push the elevator to level off. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, not rotate. Yep. The metal flexed and buckled around the stone. So then it just didn't do anything. Calculations showed that the elevator had been in a 12 degree trailing edge up position when sufficient force was applied to cause the foreign object, stone, 
to scar and pit the metal. Scrape marks also showed that the stone skidded or slid under pressure up the face of the door before punching through the door during impact. Okay. So this is a sizable stone. I would, I would, I would say that it is a rock. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> More such stones not, not were found. Mm-hmm. More such stones were found on nearly all the taxiways and aprons. I was gonna say, why are why why are there so many big stones everywhere? They were just lying loose during the resurfacing program. They were what? resurfacing the aprons and the runways and everything, and they were just out. Port Authority reported that they were continuously sweeping, but were unable to keep up with the requirements for removal of debris from the paved areas, which was only made worse by jet blasts that blew the stones all over the airport. So then, how are you operating those taxiways and stuff then? You shouldn't. Yeah. You want to know why? This is why. This is exactly why. I don't understand why you're like, yeah, well, it's impossible to keep up with it. Then close the damn taxiway and not have planes use it until it's done. Clean it up. Just I realize this up. is the 70s, but I feel like this is pretty simple it's problem still, solving. Just clean it up. <laughs> so so my immediate assumption when I r- initially read this was that the stone became lodged in the elevator during the tail strike. But investigators found that it actually didn't account for the early rotation. Remember, they rotated right, right. early before the tail strike. Right. So investigators determined that the stone became lodged during some kind of jet wake, either during taxiing or during run-up. Right. So did it cause the early rotation? Yes, yes it did. So oh, okay. basically the whole time that they were lining up to take off, their elevators were set to already rotate. So when they reached the bare minimum needed to rotate before they had commanded rotation, they were rotating. And Your then they plane. couldn't stop the rotating, which is why they struck the tail. Right. So, and then continued to pitch nose up and thus... Yeah. But why didn't, and forget, I mean, I'm sure you'll get to this, and mm-hmm. I'm sure this is one of the questions that you wanted me to ask. Why didn't they just abort takeoff? So yes, the next subject of the investigation was the cruise actions during takeoff. Why? Hit the nail on the head. If they knew that they rotate, like, they weren't, they were, they were like, we're not doing this. Congratulations, right? you found the bigger problem. Why didn't they just stop? In they particular, had to stop. In particular, investigators wanted to figure out why the pilots didn't detect the abnormal situation and reject the takeoff. They detected the abnormal situations. They just didn't reject the takeoff. Well, uh, <clears throat> okay. Uh, according to the CVR, the first officer reported that he could no longer control the aircraft. I can no longer control the aircraft, Ron, I think is what he said. Yes. But that statement was made after they already left the ground. Which was bad time. They should have realized when they tail struck and when the airplane just rotated on its own at 80 knots. Yeah. When sh- their rotation speed was 124 knots. There should have been ample time for the pilots to recognize the abnormally early rotation at 80 knots, and then the tail skid was yet another reason to abort takeoff, and the tail skid was allowed to continue for nine seconds. Yeah, I, I don't That's know. That's a long time. That's, That's a very long I'm time. I'm just very confused as to why they... Also, who's who's flying the airplane? The first officer. First officer. Which flying. is interesting, because this is before uh-huh. CRM. So you, which is a great thing to bring up. Which You also, are foreshadowing some things. Which also, <laughs> like, if that's the case, why didn't the captain say anything? Good question. Also Can I keep foreshadowing talking? some things. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're too good at this. <laughs> at this point, they took to the air and obviously had to continue with takeoff, but were already destined to crash. Like, once they were off the ground, you're dead. Yeah, there's, and there's nothing you there's can do about it. It was do. over by yeah. that point. 
Investigators determined that the captain should have either taken control or ordered the takeoff rejected. Yeah. Stop getting ahead of me. (laughs) It's okay. It's your job. I'm not actually mad at you. The first officer also should have recognized the abnormal situation when appropriate control inputs, which were recorded, did not correct the premature rotation. Investigators proceeded to review the training and manuals for rejected takeoffs after data from the Flight Safety Foundation revealed that of 200 reported rejected takeoffs, the overriding reason was for 64 of them was power plant issues or engine issues. This was not a power plant issue and that was apparent. But more of the point is, of rejected takeoffs, a lot of them are for engine issues. Disproportionately high amounts of them, actually. Mm -hmm. The study of rejected takeoff procedures in various aircraft flight manuals and flight operation handbooks revealed two disturbing statements. One, the primary reason for initiating a rejected takeoff is an engine failure or loss of power at or before reaching V1. Two, rejecting takeoffs at high speed is potentially dangerous and should not be attempted unless an actual engine failure has occurred. Why are these disturbing? It leaves the impression that the only reason you should perform a rejected takeoff is for an engine issue. If there's an engine issue. Which is not true. No, if there's something weird going on, just stop. (laughs) There are numerous reasons that you should reject takeoff that are not for engine problems, and this procedure study revealed that there is an inherent inclination to continue takeoff when the issue isn't an engine problem, and it prejudices pilots against rejecting takeoffs, which is bad. It's yes. horrible. If you, if the plane's doing something and you're like, dude, what the Yeah, this <laughs> like, isn't normal. Stop. Yeah. You shouldn't pause and think to yourself, well, it's not an engine issue. We should keep going. Which no. Is, with the number of hours in this cockpit. That's what I was going to say. You would they think. so many hours. They like, had why? plenty of experience to know what was not normal. And they should have recognized immediately that this was not normal. And I'm sure they did, but they didn't do anything about it or say anything about it. Yeah. Investigators analyzed TIA's flight operations manual in particular and found that it was not precise in regards to the rejected takeoff procedure, especially when the first officer is the pilot flying. It goes so far as to say, quote, the captain always retains the decision regarding the discontinuance of takeoff, and if he is not handling the controls himself, he must take over, end quote. This is 1970, so this, this was still... This Tenerife. This but was still captain's law, but this brings up some good things. This implicitly dissuades the first officer from making the call to reject takeoff, which they should absolutely have the power to do, especially when they're the pilot yeah, flying. Yeah, if they're the pilot flying and they're like... This feels wrong. What's going on? Like, you shouldn't have to like give it over to the captain to be like hey we need to reject takeoff isn't it fun that they said that as a very pointed thing because they might have already been on to something let me get there (laughs) in analyzing the takeoff from the cvr and fdr it was found that 13 seconds passed between the early rotation and the captain's order to take off which is adequate time to verify that the rotation was not caused by the first officer and they absolutely had time, either of them, to reject takeoff. And they had the information available to do so. Yeah. So the question becomes, was the captain actually actively monitoring the takeoff? Yeah, that's, you know what? That isn't actually a really good question. Because he, he should have noticed before anybody else that something went wrong. He did not appear to react to anything until the first officer exclaimed after liftoff that he did not have control. Investigators determined that it appeared the captain was not completely aware and therefore was not able to take prompt corrective action. It's almost like he wasn't even paying attention. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the point they're trying to make. That's pretty much how they felt about it, too. So the last point I have here, 
Historically speaking, there was a very apt statement made by the Flight Safety Foundation in regards to this incident and previous incidents that sounds very familiar, but would not be implemented until later that decade. Quote, the best fail-safe provision in the cockpit is proper teamwork. Optimum teamwork, however, is always preceded by a thorough, not lengthy, briefing by the pilot in command and possibly the co-pilot when acting as flying pilot. It is the solid basis of teamwork from which mutual confidence and assistance develop into mutual cross-monitoring and cross-checking without hesitation to call the other crew members' attention to any performance which is outside of given tolerance. This habit of mutual help of early detection and elimination to each other's mistakes and errors makes for the highest safety factor of a multiple crew, end quote. That sounds prophetic. It sounds exactly like the definition of... Crew resource management. What do you know? They might have been onto something, and they might have actually been trying to make a point of it in this... We always attribute crew resource management to Tenerife, which in part, yes, it was the worst disaster in history... Let's put it this way. That was the nail in the coffin yeah. to something that was already in the works. Yeah. This was the, f- the Flight Safety Foundation raising the alarm in 1971. Yes. Of like, hey, there's multiple work people. We yeah. got to do something Maybe about this. we should just have everybody figure it out. We got to do something about That's this. That's weird. Why would we do that? We can make a religion out of this. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> okay, well, that's all I got. Great. All right. Well, we're going to take a brick break, and we'll come back with all the stuffy stuffs. The normal stuffs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. All right. We've got normal things to do. To do. As in findings and probable cause and recommendations. Because this is the NTSB. Which is wonderful. Anyways. Findings. Skipping a few. Because they're the huge. This was fine. And this was fine. Right. And I'm not fine. Sorry. Christy's dying. And (laughs) (laughs) there's no reason. She's just dying. Something didn't sit well. I don't know why. I don't either. But I'm bailing on the post-episode. I cannot. Okay. They found that the aircraft was properly trimmed for takeoff, and the flaps were set at the takeoff position. So, like we talked about... Not a flap issue. It wasn't anything having to do with the control surfaces as they were set. Correct. I was going to say, hold on. (laughs) As they were set. As they were set. The crew did the right things. At first. At first. They found that there was no evidence of a structural or system failure in the pitch control system other than the damage to the right horizontal stabilizer leading edge and the access door and the right horizontal stabilizer rear spark, which to me sounds like there was evidence (laughs) of a structural or system failure. (laughs) But but maybe I'm just crazy. To me, I think that was a poorly written statement. So this also brings up the phenomenon early. Obviously, we've covered it before, but this was fairly early in the history of aviation of Mm -hmm. foreign object damage. Yes. It's not really early, per se, I mean, because it was a well-known thing, it just didn't really come to be a major safety concern in aviation, or it wasn't a point to be made, even though it definitely existed. But FOD, 
is what we all call it. Yep. FOD, yep. FOD control. It's still very much a thing. And it's actually more prominent, of course, now than it ever has been because... Other important examples include... Um, the Concord. Yeah. Yeah. That's episode 19, by the way. It's one of the only other major instances where FOD was... And not the only, believe me. There were some other major ones, but one there of was, the most obvious. There was that SAS flight we covered. Mm-hmm. Um, also right around the same time we covered that, um, turns out living objects are also, um, yeah, bird strikes are also considered fun, by the way. They and are, they deer. are foreign to the aircraft and yes. bears and bears. And yeah. Bears. All these things have happened. Freaking Alaska. Alaska. Alligators also. Yes. Florida. Florida. <laughs> Anyways. Yep. FOD is an important thing. And that's why actually this is something that. It's not necessarily we haven't really covered before, but it's not something we've covered at length as being truly just a problem. And I would argue that this is one of the only instances we've covered FOD caused by an inanimate object to a control surface. Yeah. Yes. The other being that one flight we were alluding to. That SAS. I, no, 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 no. Because that went into an engine. Yes. Uh, what's that flight number? It's flight number 17 of what airline? I don't remember. Emory Worldwide Airlines Flight 17. Oh, yeah. Which was, guess what? A DC-8. Yep. We'll talk about it, but actually the DC-8 was found to have a propensity for a problem that could cause FOD to do exactly what it did. And FOD became a high topic, high sub, high, high interest topic within aviation, partially because of this accident. By the way, Emory Flight 17 was covered in episode 57, and it was recommended by Rich. I'm not ah, crazy. See? There you go. <laughs> so. Is that the one where they had 90,000 pounds of demim? No. No. Oh. Hmm. I don't remember that one then. That one we covered in January. Of 22? 21. 21. Um, and whatever day we recorded that. Was Lissa's birthday. When is Lissa's birthday? I'm, I'm going to guess January 11th. I feel like that's wrong. 17th. Oh, damn it. I was so close. Oh, I could have just looked at this. Yes, we recorded on January 17th. I see. Anyway, so if you want to listen to Emery, Flight 17, it's episode 57. Cool. FOD as a whole is still a hot topic in aviation because it is one of the leading things that causes airplanes to declare emergencies. And it is also because aviation now is so much more prominent than it used to be throughout history where humans are using airplanes to get around more than they ever have before, meaning there are more airplanes in the sky. And more passengers. And more in passengers sky. in the sky and such. That that means there's a lot higher chance because there's also so many more things involved. <laughs> there's so many more things around airplanes that the odds and chances of FOD is very high, basically. So we have to mitigate that. And because of that, the airport's... Like any airport I work at, they have what are called just FOD bins. So anytime we're walking around the ramp, if you spot something that's any kind of sizable object. Like a stone? An asphalt-covered stone? Yes, that. Or trash, which is, let me tell you, an absolute massive issue at most airports. Trash is a horrible but continuously growing problem at airports. How? People don't care. Well, and the wind blows, yeah. and for whatever reason, just things end up all over the ramps. I will start taking pictures of this stuff to show you, but just on Friday alone, I think I picked up like eight different like cups from different vendors 
Some of which aren't even at the airport, which tells me that these things blow in or like employees bring them to work and then they end up on the ramp because they empty them out, forget about them, and then they blow down the ramp. But like Taco Bell cups and like McDonald's <laughs> cups and things like that. I find them on the ramp every day. That doesn't make me feel great. No. That gets sucked into an engine. Most of the time, because they're soft fod, quote unquote, they're just going to shred. Engines are designed to kind I of... just had a horrible thought. <laughs> Another example of fod. Yes, our people. Which also gets shredded. Yes. Engines are unfortunately designed to take most of this fod. I'm so sorry. It's how we've managed to fix most of these problems. It's also, they've come up with ways, of course, to protect control surfaces, to prevent... This? Things like this from happening. But they didn't used to. <laughs> also, there is a, a instilled sense of, hey, something's wrong. You should reject the takeoff right the f*** now. Yeah, which we'll get to that. But a uh, handful more findings here. They found that the airspeed at the time of the tail skids, that the tail skid struck the runway was approximately 91 knots, 33 knots lower than the planned rotation velocity. However, the rotation began at approximately 80 knots at a point approximately 1,500 feet after beginning the takeoff roll. Which is what the calculation said should happen. 80 knots is all you need. Right. For the rotation, but not to fly. No. Which is why their planned rotation speed was 124 knots, because mm -hmm. that's when you rotate and fly. <laughs> at the same time. They found that scratches and gouges were found on the surface of a right horizontal spar web access door and on the leading edge of the right horizontal stabilizer immediately opposite the scarred area. Also, by the way, I tried to look up where the hell this access door is. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. I believe it is just, I don't know if it's below or above the horizontal stabilizer on the fuselage. Because what it's talking about is access to the spar between the two horizontal stabilizers. Because there's gotcha. one spar. And so there's got to be an access panel on the fuselage somewhere that accesses the spar. There's a picture in the report. The picture is garbage. Yeah, I'm sure it doesn't do anything. Hot garbage. Yep. from 1970. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a scan. A scan report. It's a scanned report. So they look like garbage. Garbage. I'm Absolutely sure someone could crash. probably go to the Library of Congress mm -hmm. and find this report. If any of y'all are in D.C. and want to do that for us. And take decent pictures of the pictures in the report. That may or may not be helpful. Yeah. Of course. I don't know. We it's pay public for it. Access. I just feel weird about going to the Library of Congress. I feel like you can also I feel like I'm in National Treasure, like taking a picture. <laughs> that, you know? that is something you of the pay Book of Secrets. To, yeah. It's something you pay to have. Would it or would it be at the National Archives? The National Archives run the Library of Congress? I don't know. It's one of the two. Can someone go find the physical copy of you this know, thing? You can also request it online. Ugh. I know. Anyways. Talk to the government? <laughs> it was. It'd probably be like three years before they finally scan it to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could much faster just go to DC and find the damn thing myself. Well, then let's go. What do you want? <laughs> well, I mean, this plane tried to fly to Dulles. Look at how that turned. <laughs> yeah, but that was how many flights have happened since then? I, there. I'm joking. Anyways. I'm trying to tie it all together. That's what like comedy is supposed to do, right? Yes. I'm very yeah, bad at it. Yes, for your comic relief. Thank you so yes. much for coming to our comedy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's the entertainment value. Which I am the entertainment value. Thank you. No, I am the entertainment value. I know. Thank you very much. I was trying to get a rise out of you. <laughs> Turns out it's not a hard thing to do. The <laughs> out of you. <laughs> I rest my case. See, I knew what would work. Anyways. We've been her friends for too long. We know all her buttons. Yes. 
There was one more sentence to that finding. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there were smears of asphaltic material on the surface of the access door in the area of these scars, which just tells us that it came from the asphalt-covered asphalt. stones. Yeah, yes, that were that should part have of the been construction on the taxiway to begin with. Yeah. Do they still use asphalt on taxiways? Depends on the airport. Why? Every airport's different, and they carry different weights, so... Oh. It just depends on the airport. JFK. Centennial? A lot of asphalt. A lot of asphalt. Denver? All concrete. Whole thing. I wonder why. Yeah. Which actually is worse for FOD than asphalt. Does concrete hold more weight than asphalt? Yes. It does. However, it tends to break up more than asphalt does. Because asphalt basically has glue in it to keep it together. Right. It's it's a gooey substance. And it actually, did you know that it stays that way? Like, it just continuously cures for like 30 years? Yeah, but that's why like asphalt roads don't buckle like Buckley does. Right. Well, because concrete. The part of Buckley that's concrete. Yeah. Buckles. Part of the part of Buckley. Is Which Buckley. I hope someone notices how incredibly ironic that is because it happens every damn year. Yes. Anyways. Yeah, the concrete, though, tends to hold more weight, more concentrated weight, but also can be pretty easily broken up, and then they get, like, chunks, and those are definitely fun. And I imagine airports have sweeping... I was going to talk about this, but yes, we they regularly sweep every... Usually, they actually have teams that go around 24-7, depending on the size of the airport. Oh. However, some airports, they do it every... You know, so often they go around the whole thing. But also airport ops at every airport everywhere is constantly on the lookout for these. So one thing that airport authority does, I would love to do this sometime. If it's I could, pretty cool. If I could do a ride along for this, yeah. I would love to. Mm-hmm. They just hightail it as fast as possible down the runway, keeping their eyes peeled for FOD. Yep. Big chunks of rubber, anything that fell off an airplane that's metal. Anything that fell off chunks an airplane, of period. Chunks of concrete. Things like that. They're just go- zooming down the runway at like 100 miles an hour. And at places like Denver International, where I work, they have to do this to each one of the runways like four times a day. So it's a very, very, very regular thing. I like, want to do is, it. This is, not, this is not something they take lightly. I want to do it. Just I know. Once. It would be pretty cool. I want to do it down the long one. Yeah. And then when an airplane is pulling into a gate, or even before its departure... The ramp crews are required to do FOD walks of the gate area. Even if one airplane is pushed out and the next one's coming right back in, they got to do an, another FOD walk, make sure that the gate area is clean. Nothing, in yeah, case, nothing from the previous airplane fell off. Yeah, in case something fell off the airplane, in case the wind Decent blew tense. between and there's now chunks of things laying on the gate area. You don't want that. I have seen, and this is another point, like there are, it does, it still happens where like little tiny chunks of concrete and things like blow across the tarmac and little things like that. But this happens to, like, every airplane every day. You just don't usually notice because most of that concrete, the ones that the, the type of concrete that they use at airports these days is pretty soft when it's in chunks. So gotcha. it actually allows it to become basically soft fod. And these little tiny chunks, you can actually watch them. I've seen this happen. I've literally watched this happen where little tiny chunks during, like, windstorms that are getting blown they get picked up by airplanes with engines that are still running, and you just watch them shatter into dust through the engine. That's it. Like that. I mean, they, they become soft fod. The engine can deal with it as long as nothing, like, cracks, obviously. 
I feel like but, urban tumbleweeds, aka plastic bags, wouldn't be uh, great to go. No, those no. You don't want to see that. <laughs> that is not something we want to see. But I, at an airport. But I say urban tumbleweed for a reason because yes. those get blown across the plains all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. They get blown across everywhere. Like, I remember when we were in New York, which was a very long, over 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, I just broke my own brain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when we were in New York, we were driving into the city. There's plastic bags, like, attached to the fences and stuff because they just blow Urban everywhere and they get stuck. Yep. I also imagine a DIA, they get, you know, actual tumbleweeds. Yes. Yes, they do. All the time. But those are like easily. <laughs> that is. That's combustible. Definitely soft fod, though. You still don't want to encounter one. Believe me, because they get like stuck places like against landing gear and stuff. Like You don't want it. No. Mm-mm. OK. Those are bad, too. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> back to the findings. <laughs> we, we are prolonging this episode. Thank you. Yes. They found that it was calculated that the elevator was in a 12 degree to 15 degree trailing edge up position when the initial scratches were made. A short distance above these scratches on the access door, a hole was punched in the skin of the door. It was calculated that the elevator was approximately 8 degrees to 11 degrees trailing edge up when the hole was punched in the door. During impact. Right, during impact. They found that the construction of the empennage of this aircraft is such that when a foreign object is placed on top of the horizontal tail, it tends to slide inboard and toward the area between the stabilizer and the elevator. If the object is too large to pass between these two components, it will remain in this area. When an elevator trailing edge up condition exists, the object drops down into the gap and will resist a return of the elevator to the level position. This was a fundamental flaw in the DC-8. This is actually why a lot of airplanes have changed the way that they do the horizontal stabilizer, because the DC-8 used to have a very, like, tilted stabilizer where they were pretty heavily tilted downward toward the fuselage. Uh-huh. And so anything that ended up on top would slide down, evidently, toward both the fuselage, but also where the actual, the full stabilizer and then the control surface met, it would slide into the cracks. And that's what they're getting at here. And in, they wouldn't go down into the cracks until that control surface was used, and then the gap would open up, it would fall in, and then keep the stabilizer for coming back. This is why now there are protections over the gaps on control surfaces typically it's act- i'm finding it to be kind of hard to find a picture of this um most of the diagrams and such are actually of emory flight 17 mm-hmm. but you can kind of see that the horizontal stabilizers have a pretty hard v yeah on the dc8 toward the fuselage most airplanes these days don't are do that flatter yeah they're much much flatter they still have a slight angle but they're typically not that Wait, big. Here, Randa, here's a model of a DC-8. You can see the slope where like oh, a yeah, rock yeah, would, yeah. Op- would just roll towards a fuselage. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, on modern airplanes, they just, it's not, they're it's flat. a lot, it's a lot less likely to happen. And the gaps are filled and it, it prevents things from being stuck in them when the gaps, and something does fall in the gaps, because that can happen. Obviously it has. So <clears throat> anyways. They found that the object stayed between the elevator and the stabilizer, holding the elevator in approximately 5 degrees trailing edge up position until initial aircraft impact. So the object literally fell in there and then forced the control surface to be stuck up, forcing the airplane to pitch up. 
They found that with the elevator jammed in this position, there was not adequate pitch control available to the pilots to correct the attitude of the aircraft after it became airborne. The only time they could have done something was while it was on the ground. Right. Which leads to the important finding. They found that the captain was responsible, by TIA standards, for any initiation of rejected takeoff procedures. Which I hate! So then there's two more findings tacked onto that. They found that the captain made the decision to continue the takeoff, as indicated by his command, Let's take it off, quote-unquote, during the takeoff roll. Are you sure he wasn't just commenting about his jacket? (laughs) Yeah. No, definitely the wrong call. Yeah. He made that decision, however, without aircraft control inputs upon which to determine the cause of the abnormal aircraft behavior. And finally, they found that before the crew fully realized the criticalness of their situation, the takeoff had progressed to a point where they had little or no time to reject the takeoff successfully. This was caused by a combination of factors, including inadequate explanation of the rejected takeoff procedures in the handbooks, de-emphasizing of rejected takeoff procedures because of environmental pressures, and the lack of planning for such events before takeoff, which is now part of every single briefing by every airline pilot everywhere on the planet. Ta-da. His rejected takeoff briefings. Yes, because you should plan for these things. Yes. The probable cause. The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was a loss of pitch control caused by the entrapment of a pointed asphalt-covered object between the leading edge of the right elevator and the right horizontal spar web access door in the aft part of the stabilizer. The restriction to elevator movement caused by a highly unusual and unknown condition was not detected by the crew in time to reject the takeoff successfully. However, an apparent lack of crew responsiveness to a highly unusual emergency situation coupled with the captain's failure to monitor adequately the takeoff, contributed to the failure to reject the takeoff. Pretty well-rounded. Yeah. I understand their lack of inclination to name the stone as the foreign object. Yes. Because, I mean, that's pretty hard to actually prove. Sure. But they can prove that whatever it was was covered in asphalt. And was stuck there. And pointy. Yep. It was probably asphalt. Well, since it was... uh covered in asphalt the yes. hole i would uh, think and it'd be safe to uh, make an educated guess that yeah. it was something that had asphalt on it which is what they said so the recommendations were done a little strange and the best way i can explain this is they summarized some recommendations very quickly in the first paragraph they then went on to explain some of their other concerns and then define one more recommendation as new. So, the ones that they summarized, because they technically had already recommended them, I will just read this paragraph verbatim because it's the best way to do it. Quote, Based on the results of the investigation of this accident, the board recommended to the administrator, the Federal Aviation Administration, that one, All DC-8 operators be advised of the hazardous condition that can be created by foreign objects jamming the aircraft's elevators. Two, all DC-8 operators should be advised that takeoffs should be rejected when premature or unacceptable rotation occurs during takeoff until adequate procedures are developed for a positive check of elevator position, i.e. you should check again one more time before takeoff, something that airlines also do. Three, The DC-8 flight control system should be evaluated by the FAA with a view to establishing a standard procedure for checking the system from the cockpit. This procedure should provide for positive detection of a jammed elevator. And four, 
consideration be given for a requirement to install an elevator position indicator in the cockpit of all DC-8 aircraft, which also exists in almost every airliner now, in a digital form, on their EFIS usually, or you know, equivalent system, depending on the aircraft, where on those displays, it tells them exactly where each control surface is, like mm-hmm. if it's up or down or whatever. And that would have told them that one, Your of the, elevator's up. one of the elevators is not in the right position. Even a mechanical system would have told them that. So that's a quick summary of the recommendations that they had made previously, which are all pretty well I also, recommended. I also feel like, though, any tail strike should require a rejected takeoff. Yes, yeah. because you don't know what structurally happened to the airplane from the tail strike. So regardless of when the rotation happened or any of that, the mm-hmm. fact that they could hear in the cockpit that a tail strike occurred, yes. they should have stopped. Yes. And not allowed Agreed. the tail strike to continue for nine seconds. Agreed. That's why they don't anymore. And then there's one more kind of lengthy recommendation that they made. Board recommends that, quote, the Federal Aviation Administration review the subject of rejected takeoff procedures in air carrier operations with a view to amplifying and clarifying these procedures, standardizing operation and flight manual procedures for each aircraft, reviewing the role each pilot plays in accomplishing a rejected takeoff, i.e. CRM, exploring the requirements of rejected takeoff training, providing flight crews with more specific information regarding the dynamics of rejected takeoff conditions for the specific aircraft, and requiring a pre-takeoff briefing of rejected takeoff and other emergency procedures that the crew may have to employ. All of that is summarizing CRM. Yep. Before CRM. Before CRM. And pointing to CRM in the view of rejected takeoffs. That pretty much summarized the whole thing. This was actually a pretty important one because even though this didn't have a lot, it wasn't a very lengthy report at all. This one was pretty paramount in changing some pretty big things in aviation because this really was... This was one of the first times that the NTSB very pointedly wanted CRM mm-hmm. without calling it CRM yet. And they really started to make some changes in the industry that would eventually become CRM. But also, it pointed out some major design flaws in the DC-8. And also, it really highlighted FOD. Which yeah. wasn't really... I mean, foreign object existed as a term, but foreign object debris and foreign object damage, which is both FOD really became a highlighted subject in aviation and became a, a topic at airports where they kind of forced anybody who works anywhere outside at an airport to have to think about FOD. That is a critical role, no matter your job, outside at an airport. Yeah. So, that's it. All right. Ta-da. That was... Trans-International Airlines. <laughs> I was like, trans-something. Trans-International Airlines flight... Eight sixty-three. Yes. <laughs> I should like write them down at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> you know, you yeah. Also like look at the list. Yeah, but then I have to put a list up. If you forget next week's, I'm I'm gonna be upset. Well that one I know. I'm like I'll be upsetty spaghetti. Yeah. It's a it's a trick. It's a trick, but the next one is a trick. Um, by the way, it's nine o'clock. Do we wanna maybe just do the post episode a different night since it's gonna be so long? Or we can just save that post-episode for a different post-episode and just do a different post-episode tonight, do a short one. Yeah. That way, maybe Caitlin can be here so we can talk about our adventures. I don't know. I leave this up to y'all, I guess. I don't care. Let's, let's, mostly because I have work tomorrow. 
Um, let's save the longer one for later. Okay. What later means? We will determine. Whatever. But we can do a shorter post episode tonight. So we can do a short post episode for this one. Yeah. But then do that. Where we talk story. about the trip. Yeah. Later. Okay. So I guess if you heard the little blurb at the beginning of the episode, sorry. But tune in for our stories next time. Next time. And we need to try to get Caitlin here for that. Yeah. Well, that way, like, Christy can go lay down and not feel bad that she needs to go lay down. Yeah. And, like, miss it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I can talk about Quaranta. Yes. <laughs> Which she literally, every time someone we mention it to someone, that's the, like, she's like, did you know that this is where this came from? I mean, because it is cool. It, yeah, but it's it like makes a lot of sense. every single person we talked to the trip to, that's the big thing Christy needs to tell them is. where it came from. It became like my hyperfixation during the trip. Understood. It's a cool hyperfixation. Leave me alone. It is. I don't deny. I'm not shaming you for it. I'm just telling you. I feel a little shamed. (laughs) (laughs) Just telling you what's happening. All right, people. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. If you would like to check out the Patreon, you can do so via our website or go to patreon.com slash hardlandings. Yeah. Hardlandings podcast. It should pull up. Yeah, you'll find us. You'll find us. There's only one of us, so. That's right. If you uh, would like to get some merch, you should go to the merch page. And if you want discounts on merch, which I got to catch up on, sorry. uh, (laughs) Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. You can also become a patron and get discounts on merch. Apparently, there's also a free level on Patreon. You won't get anything for it, but you can definitely sign up. (laughs) Yep. By the way, it is patreon.com slash podcast. Okay. I was like, I don't remember. It's one of those. One of thems. All right, friendos. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.